0: Welcome to Think Oral,
1: where we connect the unconnected connected between oral and physical health.
0: I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Levine.
1: And I'm your host, Maria Filipova.
0: Let's get at it.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Think Oral Health podcast. My name is Maria Filipova, and I'm your co-host with Dr. Jonathan Levine. We are very excited, and I think, I don't say this lightly, because every episode so far has been such a thrill and a privilege to have, but boy, are we excited about our guest today and the conversation we're about to have. Welcome to my partner in crime, Dr. Jonathan Levine, and I invite him to introduce us to the conversation partner for today,
0: oh yes, Maria, so excited to have Chuck Cohn with us on our podcast. Chuck Cohn is the managing director of a third-generation owner of Banco Dental Company. Banco, for all the listeners out there, it's the nation's largest independently owned dental distributor, which is uh, pretty amazing. Chuck graduated from University of Pennsylvania. He has built that has been recognized as one of the top companies in healthcare to work in. He deeply believes in his people. It's a family-owned business. There's a culture of trust and inspiration in his company. I know that firsthand. And we're so excited to have a thought leader in dentistry and who is in the front lines with his teams into the dental practices on our podcast. Welcome, Chuck, to Think Oral. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate being here and flattered to be asked.
1: Welcome to Think Oral.
2: So
0: let's jump in. Chuck, let's take it from the top. Let's, here you are. You've been in dentistry for decades. You have seen the different trends, the convergence of trends that's happening today. Take us through a little bit about, take us back to a couple of decades ago when you, in fact, in your early days, you were literally a sales representative for this company, Banco, that was started about from your grandfather. Is that correct? In the that, 30s. Uh, that is correct. That's yeah, right. That is- the early days. And take us up to the trends that you're seeing today that is fueling a lot of excitement for this industry.
2: Sure. Thank you very much for having me. Flattered to be here, as I mentioned before. So, I don't really think it's right to start with where I started. It's really where the family started. So my grandfather started as a peddler in 1926, actually, peddling dental instruments from door to door. And we are now third generation, 92-year-old company. He settled in 1930 in northeastern Pennsylvania and uh, started a dental depot, which really every small town had a guy like my grandfather, sometimes more than one. It was very much an over-the-counter business and dentists would come in and buy things. I think the most important part of this conversation is really to talk about how dentistry has changed since 1930. So the question I get asked a lot is, how did your grandfather get into dentistry? And the answer is he got very lucky. And as a family, we're very proud and excited to be in dentistry, but it wasn't like a conscious decision. He happened to have a cousin. He was an immigrant from Eastern Europe, and he happened to have a cousin who was the founder and the owner of Premier Dental. So Premier Instruments was where they started. And he he had started his business about 10 years before. They just celebrated their 110th anniversary, so maybe 15 years before. So my grandfather started literally with a case of Premier Instruments going door. door-to-door, knocking on dentist doors up and down the East Coast, Northeastern Pennsylvania, Syracuse, selling instruments one at a time, a few dollars at a time to dentists at the time who had their own practices. What does that mean for today? So looking at it from a 90-year perspective, which I think is where it is, when my grandfather started, dentistry was not about preventive care. It was not about four-handed dentistry. It was all two-handed dentistry. Dentists were all basically all males. They all worked by themselves in very small offices. And the best they could do, potentially, was clean out some stuff and basically extract teeth and make dentures. In fact, I would argue that back when my grandfather started, dentistry wasn't dentistry. Was dent- Dentists weren't dentists, they were denturists basically what they did was they made dentures around about the 1950s and 60s is when we start to see the rise of preventive care and hygienists and all the things we think that are just part have been part of dentistry forever in the 90s is when we start to see the rise of infection control and more sophisticated restorative products like implants and the fancy restoratives and really this idea that a dentist can reconstruct a smile and reconstruct the oral health in a way that a generation ago we could so that takes us up to today. And I think the question you got to, Jonathan, was what are the most exciting trends that are going on today? In my mind, the technology trends in dentistry are so exciting, right? So the digital dentistry, the 3D printing, where, you know, by the time, Jonathan, you and I, and Maria is much younger than we are, of course, by the time we retire, dentists, and even today can, are going to be 3D printing crowns left and right in their office. So single visit 3D printed crowns are within the next few years. The materials are getting better and better. So 3D printing is going to, totally revolutionized dentistry. The second thing that I think is revolutionizing dentistry is really the practice of dentistry. And I think uh, we have to give credit where credit is due. The DSOs have created different practice models that just weren't present a generation ago. Dentists can now be dentists in ways they could never be before. They can be self-employed and own their own practice. They can be employees of another self-employed dentist. They can have regional groups or mid-market groups of five to 10 practices, or they can work full-time for a DSO. And I am not of the opinion that DSOs are going to take over the market. I think they're going to be here forever. They're now about 12% of the market. We can have a whole conversation around that. But the practice of dentistry, I think, is the second big trend that we have to really look at. And then the third one is something that we talked about just briefly before, which is this where does dentistry fit into the overall healthcare system? And where does oral care fit into all medical care? So the threes that I would pick, to really talk about would be technology revolution and 3D printing and all the stuff I think dentists know about every day. The second one is the revolution in the practice of dentistry, how dentistry is delivered by practitioners. And the third one would be this idea around dentistry as a piece of oral care.
0: Yes. So let's unpack that a little bit. Maria, I I know where you want to get to, but I want to just lay some foundational questions and and unpack where, where Chuck was going. Chuck, on the business model. The delivery of care that the DSOs has brought to us, where now the fragmented industry of the one dentist, one hygienist, one assistant, a high overhead, fairly low margin business, hard for the dentist to wear multiple hats and learn all those capabilities, now moving to more of an organized approach where there's a corporate infrastructure and the opportunity with proper leadership to improve the delivery of care. Let's talk about two sides of that coin, where an organized approach, but a business approach could have a negative impact, but also the other side of the coin could have a very positive impact. Hey, can you unpack that for us on your thinking?
2: Yeah. So the first thing is, with all due respect, it's your podcast, but I want to push back gently and respectfully about some of the things some are the concepts that are baked into what you just said. The first one is, I have a bias, and my bias is a strong one to say that dentists and a single practitioner dentist are actually very good business people. I see it over and over again, and the evidence that I give you for that is, tell me a business in America where the business owner makes 30 40% of the gross proceeds every year. So there's a common misperception that DSOs are somehow better business people or have some sort of magic wand to deliver dental care in a more profitable, more business-like way. Now, that's not to say that the individual dentist is able to do everything that he or she is supposed to do, but let's give the dentist props. Let's, the miracle of the dentist. The individual dentist is the main producer of the dentistry, the the main HR person, the the main CFO. They're wearing a lot of hats. And looking at the profit models and the profitability of the individual dental practice, they're doing most of those things very well for a small business. And overall, asterisk, if you can afford it, and that's a whole other conversation, if you can afford it, the dental care in the United States is delivered by a great group of professionals under a very strong business model that delivers high clinical outcomes in a way that the dentists and the patients are the winners. Now, that said, there are this new these relatively new things called DSOs. They're trying to run individual practices as businesses. There are certain things they bring to the table that they do well. There are certain things that they struggle with. One of the things they struggle with is if you're running a very large DSO, you can't just have one person wear seven hats in the organization. You have to have seven people wear seven hats. They have a CFO and a CHRO and a a chief clinical. They have all this level of overhead that an individual dentist just doesn't have. And they still have to pay the dentist to produce the clinical outcomes that the dentists are going to do. So there's, I would argue that from a business perspective, there's more flaws in the DSO model than there is in the independent dentist model. And most people don't realize that I would add to that. The nice thing and the exciting thing for me is that there's more ways to be a dentist today than there ever were before. If you want to be a full-time employee and make home, take home six figures plus every year. And at the end of the day, you leave and you got no worries. You can do that. You couldn't do that a generation ago. You can do that. You want to be an individual business owner and have all the hassles and make more money from that. You can do that too. And everything in between And that's something that I don't think as dentists or as the profession, we really celebrate enough. I think there's too often times where independent dentists go, oh, the DSOs are bad. No, the DSOs provide a very important role, not just for patient care, but for the dentists themselves. And I think they're not, they don't get the credit that they deserve. And then in the middle, there's dentists who want to be entrepreneurs and own 10 practices and still have great clinical outcomes. You can do that too. And I think that's really wonderful.
0: Chuck, I'm, I'm so happy to hear you take that position. Number one, I am an individual dentist practice owner that you're describing. I know how long it took decades to develop capabilities, especially when it comes to some of the things we never learned in dental school. And we really start learning it, as with all small businesses by the iterative process of of making mistakes and learning by those mistakes and and really surrounding yourself with as many experts as you can and outside influences to help you move towards that. But I also think you described the the double-edged sword of the DSOs where there's the downside, if the leadership and the intention, that vision of those companies are in the wrong place as it comes to outcome assessment, quality control, and driving wonderful clinical outcomes versus the DSOs, which I can think of a few without mentioning them, that have strong clinical outcome vision that creates IT systems that connects the dots between, let's say, oral health and oral health that are very innovative. Like anything else, there's a lot of differences within this growing trend. But it's great to hear about your understanding of the individual dental practices. Some of the things, and and I want you to take me down the road because you live this. From a leadership standpoint, building an organization, you built an incredibly successful, independently owned distributor company that does also so much more than just selling products. And tell us a little bit about your vision of leadership and the importance of building a positive culture in an organization, because that's very much what a lot of dentists do struggle with because they have to learn that. And it is learnable skills, as we all know, but it's something that the profession would do well to understand that better and how you've done that.
2: Yep. So happy to do it and and excited to have the conversation. So the first thing I think you have to start with in the question is really, what is culture? And I do think that a lot of business owners, small and large, struggle to define what culture is. It's like one of those things like, you know what it is, but you're not quite sure. I think on any conversation about any answer to the question that you asked really starts with defining culture. So, I years ago I heard a definition for organizational culture that I just has stuck with me for forever, and I think it's really the simplest, easiest one. And I think it, the conversation really starts there. Culture is how people act when no one's watching. I just think that's such a powerful idea, right? So people struggle. How do I? And I think you've got the culture you want when you can be gone as the business owner or business leader and everything goes the way it would go if you were there. And we all know good cultures from bad cultures. They're the ones, the bad cultures are the ones where when the leader is gone, things fall apart. People make decisions or have interactions with customers that they normally wouldn't have. A strong culture, a positive culture are the ones where when the leader is gone, things generally go very well. So the first question to answer is, what is a culture? I think that's it. When it comes to Benko's culture, I would argue that our culture, at least the way we've defined it, is really as two different pillars, right? The first one is we are focused on innovation and delivering innovative products and solutions to dentists. We call it driving dentistry forward. So we are, as a culture, as an organization, focused on a tremendous innovation culture, right? How do we find the products, find the services, find the solutions that dentists want to add to their practices that enable them? To be better clinicians and better business people. And the second piece of our culture is what we call a caring family culture, but it really goes down to a tremendous, positive customer experience and associate or employee experience. At Benko, we call our employees associates. So it's a, a two-pronged approach to culture, yeah. starting with defining culture, and then an innovation, driving dentistry forward attitude, products and solutions And then a tremendous family culture that delivers a better associate experience and customer experience.
0: Family culture.
2: Okay, Maria. Family culture.
0: That I'm right there with you because I know what works in my humble little home that I call ABL New York City Practice. And you have defined it beautifully. As you do think, just to get into that a little bit more, that family culture, how people feel that leadership style, whether you call it servant leadership or building trust and inspiring people, how does Banco do that on a day-to-day basis? How do you as a leader spread that feeling around to your senior team and to everyone where, as you're saying, when when you're not watching the CEO or who their direct report to is not watching, that they're living, eating, breathing that family culture? How does that happen?
2: So the first thing, and this may be a little counterintuitive, in my opinion, because people don't think about this when they think about family culture, I think it all starts with measurement. And I'm I'm pretty data-driven. So you can tell me you have a family culture all day long. What I want to know is, what's your associate satisfaction scores? Where's your credentials that say that you are world-class at this? A lot of us think we do, and we really don't have the measurement. So at Benco, there are Two or three different ways that we measure the culture. And culture can be measured and should be measured. The first one is we're religious about net promoter score as a way of measuring the customer experience. And I do think that no great associate, no great employee wants to part, be part of an organization that doesn't deliver a great customer experience. So in my mind, you got to start with the customer experience. So we have a world class net promoter score. I can talk about that for a whole podcast by itself. We've been measuring net promoter score since 2002. So we go back almost 20 years where I would say we're one of the earlier proponents of it. Net promoter score, for those of you who are not familiar, is that question, would you recommend this organization to a friend or an associate? Our net promoter score is in the low 70s, about 72, 73. Proud to say it's higher than Apple. Proud to say it's higher than the Four Seasons Hotel, Southwest. You see those benchmarks on the interweb and we see it all the time. So it really starts with, do you deliver a world-class uh, customer's experience? And I think we do. Second thing is, how are you measuring and reporting on, cust- on associate experience, employee experience? And we measure that religiously. On the similar scale, our score is 80. Now, it's a little hard to benchmark that. But what I would say is that, and this is where you guys started my introduction. It's one of the credentials that I'm most proud of. We were rated a top 25 healthcare Work Best Places to Work in America by Fortune Magazine last year. It's our third time, I think, second or third time we've been on that list and we're consistently on it. Our score is 80 and we've been recognized uh, by noted publications for delivering a great associate experience. And those two things have to work together, right? You're not going to have a great associate experience if you have a lousy customer experience and vice versa. I would put a little more emphasis toward customer experience. It's the way I'm wired. But I think they're both equally important. You can't have one without the other. In my opinion, delivering those experiences really starts with what you're measuring system and what's the data you're delivering and what's the data that shows you're doing it. And then depending on what the data says, then you can go back to trying to figure out how to fix it and how to deliver it better. But we spent decades working, working through that system. And there are two of the things that I'm most proud of is the customer experience score and the associate experience score. Great. That's great.
1: You you, uh, mentioned benchmarking, Chuck, and for our listeners, I just want to put your seventy-two, seventy-three 73% NPS score in perspective. The average score for a healthcare industry company is in the 30s, and that's considered great. So just to put that accomplishment in context, especially, and then that 30s varies based on if you're a provider, if you're an insurer, an intermediary and et cetera, et cetera. Congratulations on that work. And I it was not lost on me to hear you say that you have been working on it for 20 years because it does take time. Culture is not one of those things that you could declare at a town hall meeting and say, ta-da, from now on, we're all going to be innovative and we'll have a culture of collaboration. And so I'd love to... We touched a little bit, Jonathan, led us started us off with the business of dental care, of oral health, right? The DSO, the individual practice, and its impact on quality outcomes. I would love to get your take on how does culture contribute to the quality of outcomes? And is, that, is there a role for culture in that conversation, or is that something that is just a nice to have that helps you attract the right talent, but ne- not necessarily the quality connection there?
2: They're all intertwined. Culture eats strategy. I mean, the old saying, culture eats strategy for lunch. I agree that 100%. So if we're talking about the dental practice, there's every organization, small or large, has a culture. And as soon as I visit probably 500 to 700 individual practices a year, and I'm not overstating that, I get out to see a lot. Maybe in two years, that would be the number. But basically, I'm in hundreds of dental practices a year, right? I can tell you right when I walk in the door what the culture of the practice is. The number one determiner, in my opinion, of whether or not the culture is one that I'd want to go to as a patient is how long have they had their staff members, their team members, and do they have good team members? Because good people don't want to work for a lousy dentist, period. So when people say to me, how do I find a great dental practice? My answer is very simple. Look for the practice that has very competent people that have been there for years and years. Good people want to work in an office that delivers very strong clinical outcomes. And it's one of those flywheel deals. So Bad people don't want to work for a dentist that can't deliver good clinical outcomes. Good clinical outcomes promote getting better people, better hygienists want to work for a better dentists. It all works together. So culture really drives the oral outcomes in a big way. And, and dentists, at, at its core, a, a dental practice has to deliver strong clinical outcomes. Otherwise, they just can't, they could stay in business, but they're not going to deliver for the oral no, for the oral no, care no. of their patients it just doesn't yeah. work.
1: How much of the how much of of a role does culture play when it comes to delivering on what your one of your c- core values around driving dentistry forward and when I think about driving dentistry forward I think about using all tools at our disposal technology new business models new ways of problem solving I'm very wary of using the word innovation because that's overused and has so many different definitions. But for me, innovation is attacking old problems in new ways. That's it. Yeah. And I don't it doesn't matter if it's AI, quantum computing, three d printing, or pen and paper. If you're attacking a, the old, same old problems in a new way in a new way, you are doing innovation. So tell us a little bit about specifically, how do you see technology and innovation in or culture making it easier for dental offices and and people in oral health to be able to innovate and apply some of those new ways of solving all problems?
2: Sure. So I'll give an example from the Benco perspective, and it happens to be a wonderful one that involves Jonathan. So I'll start there because I think where you started was how does culture help us at Benco deliver that? So we've adopted this mantra around driving dentistry forward for about five or six years ago, certainly pre-COVID, because one of the things we recognized was dentists love innovation. They love products and techniques, but there's not enough companies that are focused on it to to deliver that. So one of the things that's in our culture is number one is we measure our innovation index. So innovation index is the percentage of products and services that we sell that were introduced in the previous three years. And our goal over the long term is to deliver a 20% innovation index. This metric was invented by 3M years ago. It's not our invention, but we've just adopted it. What's unusual is that distribution companies normally aren't known for using the innovation index. I think that's the piece that we're new at. And what it prompts us from a cultural perspective to do is to actually go out and find innovative products that we can deliver through our system, through our network. One of the ones I would like to talk to, and it's a story that Jonathan and I can share together, is Jonathan called me years ago and said, I've got this product called Glow. I'm not quite mm-hmm. sure what to do about it. Stacy and I have been working on it for years. We think it's very innovative. We tried a couple of times to get it to market. We sat down once and I said, look, here's what I would do with it. I remember the breakfast that we had a long time ago, Jonathan, probably over a decade. I said, here's what I would do. And he said, great, fine. And then went away with Stacy for a little while, came back about six or eight months later if memory serves, and says, you know what? I think you've got a good idea here. We would like to sell Glow through Benco because uh, at the time they were mostly a consumer product line and they were selling direct and they didn't quite figure out how to make the distribution model work. And I think that's a really good example of how we are proactive with smaller manufacturers, especially who are innovating at the edges of dentistry to bring those products to the general dental community. I believe we were the first long-term distributor of Glow at Benco. We got the product up to a certain amount. And then Jonathan and his team came and said, look, we want to open other distributors. And I said, that's fine. Look, we only have a 12% market share. You're going to have to go to others to get this to a bigger place. And now Glow is a leader in whitening and other products as well with relationships with the Several distributors in the market. And I'd like to think that our culture of focusing on driving dentistry forward and really focusing on smaller manufacturers, especially dentist-owned, who would say, look, we've got a better idea here. We can't, what we're not having, where are we in trouble with is getting it to dentists to try. And I think that's where a player like Benco can make a difference. And we have a guy on the phone here who can say, Yeah, I think that's pretty much what happened.
1: What a great idea. What a great example.
0: That is what happened. Thank you, Chuck, for that story. But I would say that. What Banco stands for is taking that risk. With young companies, you don't have a well-defined infrastructure. You're a startup. And you need these larger companies that have infrastructure, that have built really strong people to give you this big bear hug and to help take you to that next level. And it's exactly what Banco did we It was a great collaboration, and it still is. They're our number one uh, sales distributor, even though we're out to the big three and a couple others. But what they did for us is they uh, allowed us a platform to get to the dental practices, and our salespeople and their salespeople work collaboratively. But it's these companies like Banco, I could think of Sephora in the consumer business, that ha- are open to taking on young brands and understanding the challenges that young brands have, young companies have, and it has so much to do with the fact that they don't know what they don't know, and they really haven't built out their full teams yet on every level. And that's a mindset. That's a mindset that Chuck has taken through his organization, and the fact that he measures it, and you, we get what we measure, right, that is inculcated into their thinking and their culture is quite special.
1: Great way to think about differentiating yourself from the other distributors as well. And it's not and it's not easy to be able to identify areas or companies that you want to take a bet on. That assumes a certain level of having a certain level of perspective or conviction around the pain points that Dennis might be experiencing or where the market is going. So in that respect, Jack, I'd love to Hear your thoughts, especially for those listeners out there who might be working on a new innovation, who might have a startup that are looking to get into the dental offices. Where do you see the opportunity for or unmet needs for startups to come in and make the dentist's life easier and the patient's experience better? So tell us where those gaps are.
2: Great question. Before I answer that question, I want to say we at Benco do one thing that I think differentiates us from the larger players, Shine and Patterson. And I'm not saying that we do everything better, but one thing I think we do that is better is we answer the phone when it rings. So (laughs) if you've got a great product and you want to start somewhere, call me, get me on the phone, send me an email, we'll refer you to the. We have a culture that says we answer the phone and we answer the phone with love and respect. Some of our competitors answer the phone when they do, oftentimes they don't, with a sense of, hey, we're really big, you're really small, and this is what you need to do to get into our network. We answer the phone by saying, hey, how can we be helpful? Are we the right partner? And if we are, great, let's work together. And if not, we're going to send you somewhere that is because we're into the long-term relationships and the long-term vision of driving dentistry forward. And we're not sitting here saying, how do we get the last nickel out of this deal? We're here saying, hey, how do we, great. How do we do well for our customers? And I think Jonathan will back that up over our long-term relationship. And I'm awfully proud of that. That would be a, Maria, to where you started before. That's a cultural difference, right? We're not here, how do we maximize profits for next quarter's earning report? Because we're a family business. We're here saying, how do we think in decades and not quarters, right? And part of thinking in decades is, Today's small guy is tomorrow's big player, and how do are we helpful in that personal for their journey? So, a little bit of a long answer. Now, I'll go to the question
1: you asked, and the question you asked is: We where, love it when, when guests answer questions we don't ask. So, please, <laughs> if there's anything else that you that we haven't asked you that you want to answer, right? Government.
2: Um, but if I were a young entrepreneur, what would I? Where would I look to innovate within dentistry? The obvious answer, and again, I'm not saying anything anyone hasn't thought of before, is 3D printing is going to absolutely revolutionize everything about dentistry. So if you've got the resources and the brains around it and and you can do something with it, there's going to be a whole revolution around the materials that are used to provide healthcare in an oral setting, right? So there's a whole setting, there's a whole deal there. The second one is I do think that there are more innovative solutions out there for the practice of dentistry, right? So one of the things that often gets overlooked, and I just think it's fascinating, is dentistry has a good and bad element in it, in the protection of the practices. And what I mean when I say that is, Maria, I don't know you well. In fact, we just met before. But one thing I am sure of is you are not a dentist, right?
1: <laughs> no. So on aunt, this call,
2: right. on this call, there are two people who are not dentists, and one person who is, and that's Jonathan, right? And I think that's an important deal, and I don't think it gets talked about enough. What I mean when I say that is, Maria. And I could go out and open almost any business in America if we chose to. If you wanted to Maria, you wanted to go out and say, "I'm going to compete with Sherwin Williams and go in the paint business." You can do that. If you said, "I want to open a boutique on Madison Avenue," you could do that. If you said, "I want to invent the next version of apple juice," I could do that. There's a lot of things you can do, but there's one thing that only one person on this call can do, and that's open a dental practice. And that's the that is only people. Who have a DDS or a DMD after. Now, there are certain exceptions to it, I get it. But basically speaking, Jonathan Levine can revolutionize a dental practice where Charles Cohen and Maria Filipova cannot. And I don't think that's an advantage that most dentists understand. So the good news is if you are a dentist and you're an entrepreneur, you can buy five practices and change the way dentistry is practiced in those five sites and buy them at a relatively lower price because there's fewer competitors out there to buy them than a standard person who owns a boutique or a drugstore or anything else. And if you're a dentist and you have an entrepreneurial bent and you want to be innovative, my best answer would be, Buy three practices, buy four practices, leverage yourself up just a little bit, do what most businesses cannot do, and then change the way dentistry is delivered in those five or six sites. You almost have a carve-out from the general economy in what you can and can't do because you're a dentist. And it's not, I don't think it's talked about, and I don't think it's leveraged as much as it should be.
1: What a great perspective, and what an eye-opening. Hopefully, the those dentists listening to us who are on the sidelines, thinking about it, just not sure whether or not they could jump. That maybe that's the impetus and the encouragement that they need to just give it a try. And
2: one one yeah. more thing to add, Maria. Yeah, there are lots of ways to deliver and practice deliver dentistry and practice dentistry. They're all right. If you want to go out and create a, a three practice model where you're mostly focused on access to care in poor neighborhoods, you can do that and make a living and be successful. If you want to have three high end practices on the main street in town and charge the top dollar, you could do that too. So there are lots of models. Every one of them, in my opinion and experience, can be successful if they're well-run. And there's lots of room for innovation on the dental practice ownership perspective. So if you're a dentist and you want to be innovative, look in that direction and just go figure out where your passion is and then work on delivering a better value for the patients and for the employees you have.
1: Great. Thank you, Chuck. And please be prepared because we will include your email in the notes of the for this episode and folks will take you up on your offer to reach out and to tell you about what they're working on. And as the non-dentist, I have seen the best innovations and the most scalable solutions where dentists and non-dentists go hand in hand and play to their strengths. I I love the example I love the invitation I want to share something you mentioned the 3D printing opportunity last week I was at a um, meeting with nurses national nurse innovation meeting and something really struck me it is no it's fairly common for me to be one of the few oral health executives in a meeting and this one was not at all any different and so as we were talking about long term care I was the lone voice in the room who asked the question around the oral health issues that nurses who are working in oral health, uh, in long-term care are seeing. And what struck me was the answer that they gave. One nurse said, we have got to the point where losing teeth has become expected. Majority of long-term patients in long-term care are on pureed-only diets. Somebody else raised their hand and said, actually, toes and teeth are a luxury for diabetics. Toes and teeth are a luxury for diabetics. And so to me, that that really struck a chord. And so I think about all these technologies like 3D printing, and I see the innovation we've done in things like over-the-counter reading glasses and all other aids that make the quality of life, inclu- improve the quality of life of elderly population, which we know is going to continue to grow as a total percentage of, of our demographics. So wanted to you get your reactions to opportunities to innovate in areas where we're connecting the dots between medical and dental experiences and where we're improving quality of life and the role that dentists might play in that overall uh, systemic health connection.
2: Yeah, it's boy it's a great question and you're asking a little bit of a third rail question, but I'm going to answer <laughs> the question directly cuz it was asked. Two thoughts. Number one is, we as a society and as a profession can deliver care in which no human being within reason should lose any of their teeth before they die. And when they do, there's more than a no, there's a great variety of solutions. Everything from dentures up to full implants. We have no shortage of tools in our toolbox as a profession so that no person should go to their grave not having good oral care. That said, it starts with, in my opinion, organized dentistry deciding that they want to deliver that care. I don't think it's an innovation problem. I think it's about organized dentistry deciding that we want to create a focus and a process Around ensuring that those who don't have access to care today can get access to enough care that they can have a better quality of life. Yeah, it's up to the profession and the dentists through the ADA can make the decision that we are going to make to offer access to care dentistry for those who today are priced out of the dental community.
1: Jonathan, I know Uh, you have a plan. It's not innovation. It's not
2: technology. (laughs) It's dentists and dentistry. Dentists are individuals. Dentistry is the profession. As soon as dentistry as a profession decides to advocate for things like Medicaid coverage for dentistry, all the things that we know would provide dentistry for those who don't get it today, as soon as the profession decides that's what they want to lean in on, the technology is there, products are there, it's very close to being offered. It's just dentistry deciding that they want to advocate.
0: You know, you've come on our foundation mission With us for our Glow Good Foundation. Banco has been an incredible supporter for our foundation. I couldn't agree with you more. And it has a lot to do with leadership the organized dentistry and the leadership and their mindset of creating a level playing field or some type of equality. The idea of dentistry and also in medicine, it's a common thread, is to take action upstream, prevention and wellness, and not wait for people who have periodontal disease, decay, lost teeth, lost vertical dimension, lost facial aesthetics, lost airway, lost sleep. And because as you go downstream, that's when the systemic inflammatory diseases hits. And that's why we have a runaway train in healthcare. 20% of our whole GDP is spent on healthcare. $4 trillion. And when those kind of numbers, we understand from the scientists and the researchers on this, as we think in medicine and dentistry upstream, so prevention, education, going into schools. And when you really think about it in dentistry, it's quite easy. It's how early can we get to people to teach them, educate them, get them the tools and get preventive processes and systems. So the organized places like an American Dental Association and the leadership in organizations like that and companies that are working within the profession have to get active. We always like to say talk is cheap, right? But the truth is, who's going to take action? Who's going to lead on this front to create a level playing field? What we've done personally personally, is start a foundation. We've gone to a specific area. And what I'm realizing as I done these six missions is that the people who come on the mission with us get more out of those missions than the people we serve. And that's because dentists and the dental professionals and the allied people start understanding why we do what we do. My hope is that we can educate more people to go back to their areas, to give back to the community and to help these areas. If it's a couple of prongs where at the point of service, people start helping people, but also on the organizational side, there has to be change and it has to be in mindset.
2: Yeah, I would say, Jonathan, I agree with most of what you said, again, at the risk of gently pushing back on my host. <laughs> this is
1: becoming my favorite podcast. I love-, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love what you
2: say, Jonathan. But let me give you the medical example. If access to medical care depended on foundations and charity, there right. would be a lot of people out there who don't get medical care. Let's call it what it is. We live in a free market system. And in order to make it work, there needs to be a business model that works. And I love the Glow Foundation. I've been on a mission and I love charity efforts like Mom, Missions of Mercy and Dental Lifeline Network. I'm on a board. I, I get all that. When it comes right down to it though, if we want to really address those folks in America who cannot afford dental care, Charity foundation is only going to get us so far. We need a business model supported by an insurance network and possibly government intervention and the dentist, dentistry, the profession of dentistry itself that has a business model that can deliver care profitably to those people who are now shut out. And I I love the foundation work and I love the charity work and I respect it. And that's what we have today, but it's really not the answer.
0: Now, I hope you didn't think I was making that, but I thank you for the clarification because. It's really everybody's business. And as we all know, it takes a village. So it's everybody doing their part and leading it, whether it was organizations, whether it's government, whether it's insurance companies, whether it's the individual dental practices. We know how that builds culture in the dental practices when we are reaching out to people who don't have access to care. And so everybody starts to win by having a responsibility. And let's just put it into a place of helping people and reaching out to people and people who are are less fortunate, how do we create that equality? With with that in mind, this has been a great podcast, Maria, because we're, we're really hearing from Chuck Cohn, who runs this organization that has a wonderful culture focused on their people and their customers and looking at some of these trends and some of these issues within the industry of how do we think about change? Where are those areas that we do need to focus on? To make some radical change within the healthcare system, Chuck. Thank you so much for for joining us on this podcast, Maria. Always great to have you, my partner in crime, and looking to unravel a lot of these issues that we're facing the healthcare industry today.
1: It'll to be continued. Great to have you, Chuck. Thank you for the time. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be
2: with you both, and much more health and everyone's health, oral health. Thank you very That's much. That's right. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Think Oral podcast.
1: For the show notes and resources from today's podcast,
0: visit us at www.outcomesrocket.health slash thinkoral
1: or start a conversation with us on social media. Until then, keep smiling and connecting care.